Um, in here, we're, we're starting a, a brand new series uh, this morning on the Apostle Paul's letter uh, to the Christians in Colossae. Uh, we know the letter, of course, as the, as the book of Colossians or the epistle of Colossians. Colossians is one of the four uh, letters that Paul wrote from prison. And so it's, uh, it's one of the four prison epistles is, is what we call them. Uh, most likely, we think Paul was in Rome, in a, in a prison in Rome when he wrote this in about 62 AD. Most commentaries uh, group their work on Colossians uh, with uh, the other prison epistles, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon. And they do this in part because uh, these letters um, share quite a few things in common. One pastor summarized the commonality of, of Paul's prison letters in this way. Uh, all of his letters begin with grace and peace as a, as a greeting, and then they move to a section of thanksgiving for the believers in that city, followed by some kind of an encouragement to, to hold fast to the gospel that had been preached to them. And then Paul usually has some kind of admonishment or, or correction uh, to bad theology that he needs to address. Um, this pastor has summarized it uh, in, in that way, point four, um, which I'm really tempted to do some Sundays. So, And then uh, he usually closes the letter with greetings to or, or from other believers. Now, obviously, this slide is intended to be humorous, um, but, you know, it's not far off, and that's why it's funny, <laughs> uh, because there's, there's some truth to it. Now, while there are a number of specific things that we're going to look at as we work our way through the book, there are two major themes in the, in the book of Colossians that we'll see over and over again that will help to shape our understanding of the book. And, and more importantly, hopefully, they will help to shape us uh, into the, the people that God wants us to be as we grow in our faith. The first of those two themes is that Jesus is the supreme king of the universe. Uh, Colossians states this um, more frequently, more clearly, more eloquently than any other book in the New Testament. It's, it's known for this. And so we can expect to see this theme uh, reinforced, reiterated over and over again as we work our way through. Jesus is the supreme king of the universe. Uh, the second theme that we'll see repeated over and over is that true believers in Jesus are... Um, so immersed in him, so surrendered to him uh, that their identity actually changes. Um, they become someone else. Paul will tell us uh, in about 15 different ways that our lives uh, change as we are in Christ in Christ, and that our identity and how we live will be affected because we are in Christ. And so because of uh, this emphasis 
uh, on these two themes all the way through the letter. I'm calling the whole series In Christ. You see it on the front of your worship folder, Finding Our Identity in the Supreme King. You know, we, we all uh, have ways that we identify ourselves. Um, I'm a white male uh, born of, of Danish and Scottish descent. I'm a third generation American. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm a fly fisherman. Uh, I'm a Timbers fan. Used to be a Blazers fan. I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe this will be the year, but I don't know. My point is there, there are a lot of ways that I can identify myself to others. And, and we all get that. We all understand that. Uh, but ultimately, um, and, and this, is, this is a big part of Paul's point in this letter, ultimately, I'm a Christian. Ultimately, as Paul says in Colossians, I am in Christ. In Christ. And my position in Christ, in him, defines me and, and should influence, has to influence, everything about how I relate to the world around me and the people around me. It's interesting, I read this week that uh, uh, archaeologists uh, have, have found that many of the nameless slabs uh, in the catacombs of Rome, so a, a graveyard, if you will, simply carried the inscription in Cristo, in Christ. Nothing else written on it, just in Christ. No other descriptor was, was important to the deceased person or to their family. Simply knowing that they were in Christ was enough, right? Here are, here are just a, a few of the ways that, that Paul tells us we are in Christ. He says, we are a holy and faithful family in Christ. All things are held together, including us, in Christ. We have our hope of glory in Christ. We have become fully human in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. We are rooted, we live, and we are built up in Christ. We have been made complete in Christ. We have been buried with Christ and are raised to new life in Christ. We have died and our new life is now in Christ. We have the peace of Christ as we are in Christ. Uh, we exhort each other with the word of Christ. Our worship is in Christ. Literally, everything we do as believers is in Christ. It's who we are. And so as we work our way through this important letter, my prayer for all of you is that we will see ourselves more and more and more in this light, as we find our, our true identity in him. This morning, I'm going to cover a little bit of the background of uh, the book of Colossians. I, I already have a little bit, um, talk a little bit about why Paul wrote this letter to them, and then we're going to look at the first eight verses of, of the letter. 
And uh, before we go any further, let me lead us in prayer one more time. Jesus, thank you for all that you have done to rescue us out of our brokenness and sin. I pray that you would help us as we begin this study to understand all that you invite us into. Help us to step into the abundant life you have prepared for us and prepared us for. Now open our ears and our, and our minds and our hearts to receive your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So Colossae uh, was a city in southwest Turkey. Anyone been to Turkey? Okay, if you've been to Istanbul, uh, uh, Colossae was about 200 miles just due south of, of Istanbul. Um, uh, it, was, it was known in its day for uh, a very expensive wool that they produced there. Uh, it was dyed this deep reddish purple color, uh, and it was called Colossinum. Um, and, and it was known around the, the known world at the time as, as this fabulous wool and beautiful wool to, to make garments uh, out of. The city was destroyed and then rebuilt multiple times after several earthquakes. Uh, and this continued for, for a number of years until finally, uh, by about 400 AD, the city no longer existed at all. And in fact, it's never been excavated. Uh, so there's, there's a lot more that could be known about the, the former city of Colossae uh, that we don't know. Most of what we do know about Colossae, we know from the New Testament books of Acts, Colossians, and Philemon. Um, there's a few names, uh, Bible characters, if you will, that we know uh, were from Colossae. Uh, Philemon was from Colossae. His slave Onesimus was from Colossae. Uh, Archippus and Apphia uh, are mentioned in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. They were both from Colossae. Um, Epaphras uh, is maybe a name that you've heard before. Uh, He uh, was from Colossae as well. As far as we know, the Apostle Paul never went to Colossae, which is an interesting tidbit here in in this whole story. Uh, It was not one of the towns that he took the gospel to. Most Bible scholars think that when Paul was in Ephesus uh, on his second missions trip through Turkey, um, a young man by the name of Epaphras uh, was there in Ephesus, yeah. and heard the gospel. And he gave his life to Christ. And then he did what, what everyone is supposed to do. He went back home and told all his friends about Jesus. And they believed. And so Epaphras planted a church there in Colossae. And, and Paul, of course, speaks very highly of Epaphras uh, in Colossians and again in Philemon. He's, he's a trusted friend of Paul. He's a co-laborer uh, for the cause of the gospel. Quite a, quite a guy. 
There was a lot that this young church in Colossae was getting right, and we're going to read about some of that later this morning. But about 10 or, or 12 years after it was founded, uh, some concerns were beginning to, to come up. And Epaphras uh, travels from Colossae up to Rome, quite a distance, um, and, and shares those concerns uh, with, with Paul while he's in prison. And the concerns that he shared have, have become known by Bible scholars as the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy. I apologize. This is a lot of background, but it's, it's going to be helpful as we make our way through this book. What is the Colossian heresy? Um, David Guzik says this. It's, it's difficult uh, to describe what the Colossian heresy was precisely. Uh, it probably was a corruption of Christianity with ele- elements of mysticism, uh, legalistic Judaism, combined with early Gnosticism. And I'm not going to take time to explain all of those because that isn't the main point. The main point is how Paul addresses that. And, and, and we know that Paul's solution was to give the Colossians a better understanding of who Jesus is. Because knowing the real Jesus uh, helps us stay away from the counterfeit one, right? No matter how that comes packaged. Um, a teller at the bank just knows how real money feels, Right? Um, they got those special pens they can do and all, all of that stuff. But, but one who has been at it a long, long time just knows. That's, it feels right. That's the real thing, and this is not. And, and Paul's approach is sort of the, the same here. If, if he can help the Colossians understand who the real Jesus is, they'll be able to discern uh, when something comes along that doesn't feel right, sound right, look right. Um, so, with that little bit of background, we're going to dive in uh, to the first eight verses of Colossians. Um, if you took one of the, the Bibles that the ushers handed out, that's on page 949 of, of those uh, Bibles. So, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And we're going to pause here for, for just a moment before going on through verses 3 to 8. Because for those of us who are pretty familiar with Paul's writing, it's really easy for us to, to just gloss over this initial greeting and forget that there's some really important things that Paul is saying here that these believers in Colossae need to understand. Let me point out just a couple of them. Paul begins by identifying himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Why is this important? Well, remember, Paul's never been to Colossae. These people have never met him. Um, why, why is that important then? Uh, I mean, they have no relationship with him. We, we know that he's going to address... Uh, some important heresies, some problems in, in what's going on uh, that have been a, 
affecting this church. So he needs them to know that he's an apostle. Apostle literally means sent one. It's not really that special of a word. But uh, early on in in the church, uh, it came to mean uh, something pretty special. It it came uh, to mean uh, someone who had A, encountered the resurrected Jesus, B, someone who had received uh, their message, their commission directly from Jesus, and C, uh, they were recognized by the other uh, church leaders, basically the, the other apostles. So in his opening words of this letter, Paul is establishing his authority, his God-given authority, in things relating to Jesus and his church. So right out of the gate, I mean, it sounds like he's just introducing himself, but there's, there's authority that, that comes with that. The next thing uh, I want us to try to see with fresh eyes, and this might sound odd to you, it's the word Christ. How do we see that with, with fresh eyes? Uh, people are so used to seeing Christ and, and Jesus together that, that some people almost view it as part of Jesus' name, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but I had friends growing up who I think they actually believed Jesus' middle initial was H, you know, just by the way they talked. Some of you are like, what? Okay, maybe that didn't, didn't work. Um, Christ is a Greek word for Messiah. Messiah means anointed king. This is really important. I've, I've tried to capture it in the series title, but when we read Christ, when we read the word Christ, we should understand that Paul is saying that Jesus is the rightful king over the entire universe, the supreme king over the whole universe. Paul believes that if we are in Christ, we are then under the rule and reign of King Jesus who has absolute authority over us. Okay? So Jesus Christ just rolls off our lips really, really easily. And that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not He's not writing it that way because it sounds good. This was, this was a new concept that this person was the Messiah, the king, God's appointed king of the universe. N.T. Wright, I think, captures this well in his translation of, of Colossians when he, when he does it this way. Paul, an apostle of King Jesus by God's good pleasure, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, those in the king's faithful family. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. All Wright has done here is, is simply replace uh, the word Christ, which means anointed king, with the word king. And all of a sudden, it, it takes on a deeper meaning, at least for me. And I'd like to encourage you just... Try this on as you're doing your Bible reading and you come across the word Christ. Instead of Christ, put in King, all caps, there. And and see what it does to begin to change your view of, of what is being said and how you understand that text. 
also in verse 2, right, has, has done a good job of, of capturing uh, what is meant by the word saint. Saints are not people who have gone through some uh, sort of rigorous examination uh, by the church after they die. That's, um, that's how some traditions have, have viewed that. Uh, sainthood is, is not reserved for people who have performed some kind of a miracle. That's also not a biblical approach. According to the Bible, if you are in Christ, if you have sworn allegiance to King Jesus, you are a saint. Saint Judith. Saint Buzz. Saint Ron. Saint Horace. Saint Andrew. Well, that one sounds sort of normal, but, right? If you're here this morning and you are in Christ, you are a saint. And these saints make up a family, Paul says, of brothers and sisters who are in Christ, right? It's really important for us to try and uh, understand this. And then finally, uh, in his greeting, Paul extends this blessing of grace and peace. And this wasn't normal in, in the Roman world, in the, in the Greek world, right? Um, it, it, would, it would have been just greetings to you. That's, that's how a normal letter would, would open. But, but Paul does something different. He, he blesses these people with, with grace and peace, Karis and Shalom from God the Father. And this had to have been pretty amazing to these people from this relatively insignificant town in southwest Turkey. That the Apostle Paul would honor them, people he had never met, with these words of, of blessing at the beginning of his letter to him. So that's just his greeting in the first two verses. Let's, let's go on. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. There's a lot in these uh, four uh, verses that were important for these believers in Colossae to hear, and I think important for us to understand today. There's three key words that should sort of jump off the page for us, words that, that Paul has expressed um, multiple times in, in other uh, writing. Uh, Paul expresses uh, a gratitude for these things being uh, displayed in the lives of the Colossians. Uh, there are also three things that we would do well to make sure are true in our own lives. Uh, let, me, let me just pose this question. If, if Paul was writing a letter to the saints in St. Helens or the saints at Grace, would he be able to say these things to us? The three words are, are familiar to any of us who have, who have read the New Testament. Paul especially uses these 
three words a lot in his writing. Um, and I wonder if you, you already know what the three are, right? Let's, there they are, I bolded them for you. What are they? Now, it's interesting uh, that you, uh, you chose to put them in order of the 1 Corinthians 13 reference of these three words, which is, which is fine. They're all there. But uh, in this letter, Paul uh, puts them in this order, faith, love, and then hope. So let's look at those. When, when Paul commends their faith, I think he's talking about two things. Uh, the immediate context of verse 4 Um, seems to be referring to their initial faith in Jesus. That is, trusting in Jesus uh, and his life, death, and resurrection for their own new life. Uh, This this would be how they initially came to faith in Christ when they heard the gospel. But back up in verse 2, Paul commended the Colossians for their faithfulness as well. And this is... This is more of the living out uh, our identity in Christ, something Paul will spend most of the second half of of his letter encouraging them to do. So it's really important to have that initial conversion experience of coming to faith in Jesus, but it's equally important to continue in faithfulness to Jesus as king, right? So that's faith. Love is... Uh, is is the the second word that that I want to emphasize this morning. Uh, Paul commends their agape. Um, we always put agape love together. It's just agape. He commends their agape for all the saints, uh, all of them, or as my granddaughters say, all of them. They just kind of scrunch that together. So Paul commends their agape. All of the saints. You know, historically, Christians haven't always done a great job of loving one another. That may surprise you. It probably doesn't. Uh, About 10 years before Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, he wrote another letter that we're very familiar with because it's in the New Testament. He wrote a letter to the Galatian church. And unlike his words to the Colossians, Paul condemned the Galatians uh, for how they were not loving one another, for how they were uh, biting, backbiting one another. Uh, In Galatians 3, he reminded them of Jesus' words commanding them to love God and love one another. And then he said this, "If if you keep biting one another, you're going to destroy yourselves. The whole community is going to be destroyed if you keep doing this. I don't know, maybe the Colossian Christians heard about Paul's letter to the Galatians 10 years earlier. Maybe they learned from it. Maybe they said, I don't want a letter like that from Paul, right? We got we to gotta fix this now. Or Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud, right? We got to take care of this right away. For whatever reason, Paul didn't feel the need to to correct the Colossians on this point. Rather, he commended them for their love for one another. Now, this this message isn't really about gossip and backbiting and all of that, but but I got to wonder, 
um, comparing Paul's condemning words to the Galatians with his commending words to the Colossians, I think it's worth asking, which letter would he write to us? Which one would we want him to write to us? How are we doing at loving all the saints? All of them. This is hard stuff. This is not easy. But, but I'm encouraged by Paul's words here to the Colossians uh, because it shows us that it's doable. It's actually possible. It's actually possible to do this and have the Apostle Paul said, good on you. Way to go. I've, I've heard of this from Epaphras. He came back and told me about it. Good job. That shows us it's possible. It's doable. Well, the, the third word that jumps out as part of this familiar trio of, of words that, that Paul uses is hope. He says that their faithfulness to King Jesus and their love for one another are due to the hope reserved for them in heaven. And when I read these words, I can't help but hear Peter's words to the believers in, a, in the, uh, the same region uh, of the world when, when he wrote in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven, heaven for you. This hope that Paul says is reserved for us in heaven is the same living hope that Peter talks about here in 1 Peter. And Peter describes it as an imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading hope being kept in heaven for us. Peter says that this hope comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, why would that be? Why would Jesus' resurrection fill us with hope? Well, first of all, and, and maybe this is obvious, maybe it isn't, Jesus didn't stay dead. And, and what that meant uh, uh, was that God raising Jesus from the dead was proof that his sacrifice for our sins was acceptable to God. It was accepted by God. But Jesus' resurrection also gives us hope because it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. I've talked about this when we went through 1 Corinthians 15 a while back, but uh, when Paul explains the gospel there in 1 Corinthians 15, it's all tied up in the resurrection. It, It all has to do with the resurrection. And in there, Paul uses the term first fruits. What's that? Well, first fruits... Uh, is, is a term that's intended to tell us that God is guaranteeing something. It's, it's sort of down payment language. Christ's resurrection is God's promise, his down payment, sitting in escrow, that all of those who are in Christ will be resurrected from the dead. That, that the process of death and dying that was, that was begun in Adam, and, and we see that decaying of everything going on because of that, that process 
is going to be reversed by the process of resurrected life that has begun in Jesus and his resurrection. And then it gets even better. I love 1 Corinthians 15. It's so good, okay? It gets even better. Not only are we going to be resurrected, but what what God is going to do with people, he is going to do with the entire universe. Because the Bible teaches that the entire universe is going to be resurrected, recreated into a new heaven and new earth, where we and our new bodies will live and work and play and enjoy and love God and love one another the way God always intended for us to do. So coming back to Colossians, then, this is the hope, the, the 1 Corinthians 15 hope, the, the first Peter hope. This is the hope reserved for us in heaven that Paul talks about in verse 5. And this hope was a part of the gospel that they had responded to when they first put their faith in Christ. And this hope is also the reason that the Colossians were able to remain faithful to Christ. And it is the reason that they were able to love all of the saints. Paul says here that faithfulness and love, in essence, are the the fruit that this hope produces. I've, I've said this before. I feel like I need to say it every, every time that I use the word hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's not talking about wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is this confident assurance that something will happen because God promised it. Because God said it, I am going to believe that that is true. It's a knowing with certainty something that God has said. And so knowing with certainty that Jesus will one day return for uh, his people produces in those people the fruit of faithfulness uh, to, to keep serving him. When we believe with all of our hearts that Jesus really is coming back, which I'm not sure many Christians believe because they don't live like that's going to happen, but If we really believe that, truly believe that Jesus is coming back, we remain faithful in him because we want to be counted among the faithful who are found serving him when he returns. And in one of his lessons or sermons, Jesus asks this question, will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? It's up to us, right? Now, what does this resurrection hope have to do with loving one another? I thought about that this week. I mean, I know Jesus commanded it. Uh, we, We saw that multiple times in our Commands of Christ series. But why would resurrection hope make me love others? I came up with two reasons. Maybe there are more. The first one is this. I'm going to have to spend eternity with you people. (laughs) And you with me. We're in this for the long haul. The long haul. We're talking eternity. Right? I'm kidding. Sort of. 
But here's a, here's a better way of looking at it, I think. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. What? On earth? Yeah. When Jesus first started his public ministry, he announced that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here. Uh, he, He inaugurated that. Jesus didn't want us to wait for his return to start living as his kingdom citizens. He meant for us to live that way now. And one of the ways that we live under the rule and reign of King Jesus right now is by loving others as we have been loved by God. He didn't intend for us to wait until we all get to heaven to sing and shout the victory of Jesus over sin. He intended us to be living that way now on earth as it is in heaven. One last thing to note here in verse 6. Not only does this hope produce a fruit of faithfulness and love, but it spreads. It spreads. Uh, It grows. It increases. It's it's like an invasive plant. Uh, Maybe like blackberry vines or something like that. Uh, last, last week, uh, our friends Doug and Mary uh, were here. And, and Mary, Sunday afternoon, Mary got to f- pick her very first uh, blackberry off of the vine and eat it. And the look on her face, I mean, they're sweet that way in a way they aren't in the grocery store, right? Somehow, Mary had imagined that blackberries grew in these neat rows on a farm, Somewhere. She doesn't understand. They're just everywhere up here, right? And the gospel is, is wild like that. It produces this wonderful, oh, wonderful fruit. And it spreads. Paul says in verse 6 that it's spreading among them in, in their own community and all over the world. So I think one of the questions that this passage raises for us is, are we spreading the gospel? And if we're not, could it be because we don't show any evidence of the fruit of faithfulness and love? And if we aren't bearing that fruit, then maybe we don't really believe in the hope of the resurrection that is contained in the gospel. Because Paul says that when we do, it produces this this fruit. Okay, last two verses for this morning. Verse 7, he says to them, You learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. So as I mentioned earlier in these last two verses, we learned that it was Epaphras who first shared the gospel with his fellow Colossians. And he's also the one that took the news back to Paul about their faithfulness and love and most likely shared his concerns about some heresies that were were creeping in. In verse 8, we learn that their love for one another was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Colossians 1 is is one of the places in the Bible where we see the evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity, if you don't know, 
never appears in the Bible. It's not there. So where do we get this? Where do we come up with Trinity? Well, the three persons of the Trinity, the the Godhead, as we sometimes say, are talked about throughout the Bible. And this passage is one of the passages that uh, contains references to all three, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's Paul's intro uh, uh, to his letter to the Colossians. So our takeaways, uh, real, real quick here. Uh, Paul celebrates a number of things in these opening verses that um, I, I would love to believe he celebrates or would celebrate among us. Uh, but maybe a way to get at it is to turn them into questions for our own lives, for our own community here. So the first question is this, are you in Christ? Uh, Paul says that the Colossians heard and understood the gospel. He says that they placed their faith in Christ. Have you done that? Because if you haven't, everything else we're going to talk about in this study is really a moot point. You won't have the living hope that Peter talks about. You won't have this true agape love uh, that, that, that comes from God um, because you, you don't have God. So are you in Christ? Secondly, are you producing a fruit of faithfulness? Are, are you living your life as a person who is surrendered completely to the rule and reign of of Jesus, and if if not completely, then what are the areas? Whether whether you know them or whether they're you're blind to them, what are the areas that you need Him to rule and reign in your life? Uh, the third question is: Is your faithfulness to Jesus evidenced by your love for others? Would all the saints gathered here this morning? And those who maybe are often a part of our gathering, would all the saints in our faith community feel loved? I think you know the answer to that. There are people that don't. There are people that aren't sure. They question it. Would 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 outsiders look at us, and as they did with some of the Christians, probably the Colossians, would they say, look how they love one another. Would they know that we are Christians by our love for all the saints? Would they know that we must serve a different king who rules a different kingdom. And so our lives look very differently. And then lastly, the, the last question is, is this gospel of hope being spread by you, by me? Who am I sharing it with? How is my life, and this, this is a tough one because you're not going to leave here being able to even say this name, but how is my life like Epaphras? When, when, I've, when I've heard the good news of Jesus, 
Who have I gone to and said, you, got, you just got to know this. You got to hear this. I mean, this, this sounds too good to be true, but it's true. He really did this. Who have I done that with? Because Epaphras couldn't, get, couldn't wait to get home and tell them about King Jesus. This is what people who are in Christ do. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, this letter written to this church uh, in a city that doesn't even exist anymore, but it gives us a glimpse of what pleases you. And so I pray that you would help us, uh, not in every way, because there were some problems in this church in Colossae, but at least in these ways, that you would help us to become these kinds of people. People who walk in faithfulness, people who love all the saints, and people who uh, tell others about this hope that they have that's reserved in heaven for them. So we pray that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.